Welcome to the Cheryl Broderson Podcast, encouraging and equipping you through the study of God's Word. This is a podcast taken from the Joyful Life Bible Study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. So on Saturday, March 5th, I had the privilege of speaking at Miss Velma's memorial service. And uh, Cynthia is in the fellowship. There she is. Uh, Miss Velma was 95 when she went to see Jesus, and she had been the faithful wife of Johnny Ezel. She taught at MCA for 31 years and retired at 82. And she literally touched hundreds, hundreds of others with her life. Miss Velma's family, as the boys got up to share, and her daughter Sherry, um, they talked about Miss Velma's love and kindness, her faith, her dedication to Jesus, her sense of humor, and her desire to make everyone around her feel loved and special. And her pet phrase, do you know your Marvinky, right? Do you know your Marvinky? And then she would say, it's better than marvelous, and I made it up myself. And it was such an honor to be asked and to share at her memorial. I had known her since I was three or four years old. And she was one of those rare adults who actually pays attention to children, that keys in and talks to children as if they're real people. And there's something about that when you're a kid that I still remember. So I always try to talk to the little ones. And, but she made you feel so important and noticed. And I love that about her. Um, from the time I was a little girl, she would find me. Even when she was, you know, had her walker, she would find me just to give me a word of encouragement. And I couldn't help thinking when I was preparing to share about how her life showed um, her values. Her whole life reflected her values. And what a great legacy she left to her children and her grandchildren of what a godly woman looks like and sounds like and acts like. In Revelation 14, 13, it says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, for they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So after three visits to the emergency room in the last two years, I've been thinking a lot about my actions and my values and whether or not my life reflects that. And I'm, I've really sought to do some, some reevaluation. I've had to do these major life changes, um, like in diet and in exercise, and everything takes longer. You know, when you're older, it doesn't take less time, it takes more time for everything. You know, like I never floss my teeth, and my dentist is like, if you don't floss them, you'll lose them. So now I'm religious about flossing my teeth. And then there's the, the Regiment that my my the regimen that my daughter put me on for the facial creams, you know, and she sent me this thing, Mom. It will take a little longer, but this is how you should do your makeup. And I was like, I'm not even going to watch that. It'll take too much time. I can do it in three minutes, and it shows. But I can do it in three minutes. It's like I don't want to take all this extra time. And now I've got all these vitamins I'm supposed to take every morning, and I have to mix this drink, and I'm just like. But one of the things I'm working on is that, you know, I've got all these extra things in my schedule, but I'm working at moving more deliberately and slower. And one of the issues that came up is that I have to eat slower. You know, I I like to eat it in like three bites. I used to finish before anybody else at the table, way before Brian. You know, in fact, Brian and I would go get a hamburger and I'd be like, do you mind if I walk around this little mall while you finish? Because I knew he was going to be another half an hour because he just tends to enjoy his food. You know, one of those guys, you know, that just takes it slower and just savors every bite. Not me. I wasn't even sure what I was eating. So now I've been told I have to take smaller bites, smaller portions, and more chewing. And they said, in fact, Cheryl... Between every bite, set your fork down. I'm like, what? I want to be ready at all times, you know? Because it's like, um, uh, swallow, um, uh, swallow, you know? And it's like I have to 
put my fork down to go 25 times. And I got a fake tooth on my left side, so I have to make sure it's more on my right side. But I tend to always be in a rush. I am always rushing. This morning, I was rushing when I realized I'm going to be late no matter, even if I rush. So I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. And sure enough, I missed every light on the way to church. Always happens. My eldest daughter has a nickname for me. Her nickname is Rushy Rushy. And she'll even say to Brian, you know, her dad, well, where's Rushy Rushy? You know, well, how long till Rushy Rushy wants to go? Rushy Rushy. And I, I guess I deserve that, considering I've always called her Pokehannis. <laughs> but I'm seeking to slow down to savor moments, and especially conversations. And I even like, made a vow to the Lord that I'd be more deliberate in listening and hearing right before I got this ear thing. But I want to invite conversation. And I want to slow down, I want to stop, I want to listen, I want to engage, and I want to invest in others. I want to. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is staring death right in the eyes. And it is in this chapter we find out what matters most to Paul. We see his values, his priorities, and his faith on, on true display. There's not a time that it gets more authentic than when death is imminent. That's when our true priorities and our values surface. It's in crisis. So with Paul, we can take note of his last words in Testament to Timothy, the last words ever written by Paul. And we find that relationships, God's word, grace, the Lord's presence, the gospel proclamation, and the hope of the gospel, these were Paul's greatest values and his priorities. We begin with relationships. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22, Paul mentions 18 different people. Paul had a unique relationship with each person he mentioned. I'll, I'll be referencing Romans chapter 16 in a minute. And in Romans chapter 16, not only does he name over 21 people, but he also has a little comment on each one to show that there was an investment, that he knew these people well and he cared about them. He had something in Romans, something, a commendation for each one and, and personal things like, this is my friend in Christ, this is my coworker. So in 2 Timothy, we see Paul had an especially unique relationship with Timothy. Remember in chapter 1, he asked that Timothy would come and visit him. And he asked Timothy again in chapter 4, verse 9, to come to him again. Be diligent to come to me quickly. This is his son in the faith. And Paul wrote two personal letters to Timothy. In fact, 2 Timothy is Paul's last recorded letter. He told Timothy in chapter 1 that he longed to see him. He loved Timothy's company. Sometimes we get, sometimes we get this idea of Paul as just intrepid and just you know, self-sufficient and not needing anyone and just Mr. Tough Guy. But we see that he had a tender spot, that he loved relationships. He loved his friends. He loved his companions. There's a, a line, and I can't remember who wrote it, but no man is an island. In Proverbs, I believe it's chapter 18, verse 1, it says, a man who isolates himself, and I'll paraphrase, hurts himself and rages against his own soul. We need relationships. We need friendships. And especially in Christ, we should put a high priority on them. I remember three outstanding instances in my dad's last days, which spoke to me of relationship. I remember it was a, a beautiful day, and I knew that my dad was going to be with his physical therapist. And 
I had gotten to get a cup of coffee and I noticed I was driving down Harbor Boulevard. There's just certain times when the mountains are just powdered with snow, right? And the sky is just crystal blue. And you see it on Harbor Boulevard of all places, right? It's like, who expects something beautiful on Harbor Boulevard besides hamburgers? And I remember just seeing it and going, oh, it's such a beautiful day. So I rushed home and I called my dad and I said, dad, wait till you get outside. You're gonna see a crystal blue sky and the mountains are powdered with snow. And he says, well, baby, come walk with me. And I couldn't, my day was so filled. That still haunts me. Well, baby, come walk with me. The Lord spoke to me the other day. He says, I've got better skies and better mountains up here. You'll get to walk again. But I remember one time taking him dinner on a Friday night. And, you know, um, I would, we would sit in the family room afterwards and, and chat, Brian and I, mom, dad, and um, sometimes our kids would be there. And I got up to leave, not knowing that my dad's homegoing would be so soon two weeks later. And my dad said, oh, please, stay a little longer, please. And my whole entire life, my dad had never asked me to linger or because he was Mr. Rushy Rushy. I got my Rushy Rushy from him. And so when he said, oh, baby, please stay a little longer. Can't you just spend a little longer time? Dad usually went to bed at 8 and I was thinking, this is close to eight. That time, I actually did sit down. I just sat down. Finally, after his last surgery, I remember I rushed home to go change. After you know he went into surgery, I rushed home to go change. And while I was there, I got a call from the hospital that he was out of surgery and asking for me. And you better believe I rushed right back to the hospital. And I went in there, and I talked him into eating ice chips. I was like, Dad, if there's one thing Hoke Hospital is known for, it's the best ice chips in the world. Because they had said, do you want any ice chips? He was like, no. Like, yes, you do, Dad. These are the best ice chips ever that you have ever had in your life. Anyone who's had a baby or a surgery at Hoke Hospital knows they have the best ice chips ever. Like, if you're in there, ask for the ice chips. That's my recommendation. But it's so precious to be asked for or requested. Even though he was my dad, and I knew him really well, but to think that my dad was calling out my name and wanted to see me just meant so much to me. But how much to Timothy for Timothy to know that Paul is saying, I want to see you. I know I'm going to die, but I want to see you. It shows how much Paul loved Timothy, both at the beginning and at the end of this letter, he requested that Timothy come and see him. Paul was ever the father to Timothy. In verse 15, Paul warned Timothy to beware of Alexander. Alexander belonged, no doubt, to the Guild of Coppersmiths in Troas. So he was a man of influence and connection. And he had done Paul harm and resisted Paul's words or any um, overtures of peace that Paul made. So Paul warns Timothy. And then he ended his epistle with a blessing. To Timothy, saying, the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Um, in other words, he was asking that God's peace and comfort calm Timothy's spirit, strengthen Timothy's spirit. Then he said, grace be with you. And perhaps you remember in chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul had told Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And now he takes that same divine power, that same divine acceptance, that same divine forgiveness and empowerment and sufficiency, and he blesses Timothy with it. Paul also spoke to Demas. Paul was vulnerable, vulnerable to being hurt. 
I think we've all had the experience of being hurt by someone we've invested in, especially kids, right? Don't you think prodigals hurt because you've invested so much in them? I mean, you've invested love and attention and time and money in your prodigals. I remember at one point, my youngest daughter, she's like, I just want to commit suicide. I'm like, you can't. I have such a large financial investment in you. There is no way you can off yourself. I've, you know, literally thousands upon thousands in you. You're going to stay alive even if I have to chain you to me. There is like, mm mm-mm. But we make these investments in friendships. Um, Sometimes we invest our confidences. Have you invested a confidence in somebody? And then when they turn on you, you're thinking, they have so many of my confidences. I told them my heart. I, I told them my values. We... I gave them so much attention and my time and my energies. Paul had not only invested love and attention and time into Demas, but also the gospel. Demas had been with Paul during his first imprisonment in Rome, perhaps because Demas believed that Paul would be reprieved. And he was. He was released and there was a reprieve. And Demas thought, now we're going to keep going and we'll be important people. However, when Paul was rearrested and his execution was imminent, Paul writes that Demas forsook him, deserted Paul when Paul needed him most. Perhaps Demas thought Paul was no longer on the winning side. And Demas chose the safety and rewards of this life over the eternal awards given to those who suffer and endure. Paul mentions Crescens, Titus, Luke, Mark, Tychicus, Carpus, Prisca, Aquila, Onesiphorus, and his household, Erastus, Trophimus, Eubulus, ah, I didn't want to blow this, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and other brethren. Relationships are eternal. This is the way we invest in the kingdom of heaven when we invest in each other. They are our opportunity to minister the love, kindness, grace, and truth of Jesus to each other. Albeit, we're going to lose on some of those investments. We're going to be hurt by some of those investments. It's par for the course. I think a lot of people after COVID, they, they backed up from relationships because relationships make you vulnerable to hurt. You can reject, you can leave like Demas and it's going to hurt, but that doesn't mean we should stop investing. But isn't that what the devil tells you to do? Well, you know, there goes another friend. You did it again. You loved another person. You put time into them. You put effort into them. In fact, I think they have some things that you made in their house. And look where it got you. You know, you should close your heart. You should take on Pat Benatar's song, I'm going to harden my heart. (laughs) You know, and that's what the devil's telling you. You don't want to get hurt. I don't know why the devil's always this right hand. (laughs) But, you know, you don't want to get hurt again. You know, it hurts, doesn't it? Why don't you just stop it? You just stop investing in people. You know, you talk too much anyway. So stop telling them how you feel. And and that's what the devil's always saying. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. Yes, you will. You will get hurt. Relationships hurt. They they do, but they're worth it. They're worth it. It's worth investing in people. The Bible says he who would have friends must show himself friendly. You know, it hurts. And you're taking a chance in investing in people, but don't stop because it's a kingdom investment. You know, I've invested in a lot of people that aren't at this church. A lot of people. And you know what? I invested for the kingdom, and they're spreading the kingdom wherever they are. 
and it was worth it. Paul then talks about God's word in um, verse 13. It's of note that Paul wanted his cloak, parchment, and scrolls. He left them with Carpus at Troas. Either Paul was arrested there, or perhaps he was on one of his missionary journeys and planned to return to Troas. But it's one of those questions like, if your house was on fire, what would you grab first and save? So Paul's like, ah, I left the scroll and I could use my coat. You know, I was put to the test on this with Margaret and Ellie and and Linda. We were in England. We had fallen asleep because of jet lag. It was our first night there. And what seemed to be the middle of the night to us, 9.45 p.m., the alarm started going off in this hotel. And it was, exit the building, exit the building. And it's really loud in the room, so you can't even sleep through it. You know, exit the building. So I got up, I grabbed my coat, my, I have short pajamas, so I put on sweatpants, put my Ugg boots on, like I'm going to be warm, put my coat on, grabbed my jacket and a hat, and went down the stairs. Well, I get downstairs, and you could see that Margaret prioritized nothing but her life. She's got her flannel pajamas on, slippers, and a sweater over it. I'm like, are you cold? And Margaret's like, yes. (laughs) We're out in the elements, right? Waiting for the fire engines to come. And I remember Linda looked at me, she's like, you've got your purse. I'm like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. It's got my passport in it. I want to go home. If anything happens in this hotel, I want to go home. But it was, you know, she didn't have her purse, but I will say this. Linda had what? Her cell phone. Her cell phone. She was not without her cell phone. And that's where you see a person's priorities. I am... I just want to say that my Bible was also in my purse. God's word was so important to Paul that even at the end of his life, he still wanted to read it, study it, and know it, even though death was imminent. He didn't say, well, I I know enough of the word of God. No, he still wanted to read it and study it. There was a missionary named Jonathan Goforth, And at the end of his life, he was blind. He had returned from China. And he would sit in a certain chair and have his wife read the Bible to him for hours. That was his only entertainment. He just wanted to hear her read it. And if she paused, he would complete the scripture. He knew it so well. Yet he still wanted to hear it. He could quote it himself, but he wanted to hear it, and he wanted to be in the presence of it. My grandmother, too, when she was dying of cancer, I remember she was living at our house, and she had a hospital bed in a room that later was my room. And she, whenever my dad would enter the room, or my mom, she would say, just read me the Bible. Just read me the Bible. And one of her favorite passages was Isaiah chapter 11. Paul prioritized the word of God, the scrolls, the parchments. Grace. Paul prioritized grace. It's interesting to note, Paul does not go into much detail about Demas. And his comment, he has forsaken me, having loved this world the things of this world, you see Paul's grief. You can sense it by the word forsook, not just like Demas is gone, but forsook. But it doesn't have grit. There was so much more. He could have said, I saw it in his eyes. When he was with me, there was something about the way he was looking at this or But there's no grit. It's a simple statement of grace, of grace. It's true. He loved the world. He went back, but it's not grit. Alexander, the coppersmith, is given over to the Lord to deal with. 
verses 14 and 15. This is what true forgiveness is. It is not forgetting the wrong done, but it is not requiring the repayment for the wrong done. It's when we give up our right to vengeance or our right to be requited. We give our debts and those rights of collection to the Lord. And so Paul says, may the Lord repay him according to his works. He gives that wrong that Alexander did to the Lord. And in so doing, we see grace. In verse 11, he mentions Mark and he calls him useful or profitable. On Paul's first missionary endeavor with Barnabas, at the second stop after Cyprus, they had gone to Cyprus, the Lord had done amazing things. But in Antioch of Pisidia in Acts chapter 13, we read that Mark left Paul and Barnabas and went back to Jerusalem. Well, when Barnabas and Paul were planning on a second missionary endeavor, Barnabas said, let's take John Mark with us again. And Paul said, no. And they had a heated debate and an argument, and they split over it. Barnabas took Silas with him, and Barnabas took his nephew, John Mark. It is likely that it was on this trip when Mark was with Barnabas that he proved useful and Paul saw that Mark was profitable. And I love this grace that there's, again, no grit, no like, well, he deserted me once, but there's forgiveness and there's even commendation here and a desire to see Mark, to be with Mark. In verse 16, Paul says that no one stood with him at his first trial. In other words, no one went to court with him. No one testified on his behalf. Perhaps it was because this was too dangerous or because no one was summoned to do so. You know, it's a dangerous thing to require or ask people to do something that God is not asking or requiring them to do. And I think we do that when we place expectations on each other. And our expectations for each other, I believe, are higher and harsher than God's expectations for any of us. And I have found that whenever I place expectations on people, I'm the problem, not them. Because I should not expect or call someone to do anything more than what God is calling them to do or to be. But isn't it true that we place those expectations on others? I mean, we, I place the expectation for Brian to act like Mr. Darcy all the time. And he, he's never, ever even said anything Darcy-like in his whole life. In fact, I wrote a dedication in his Bible, and I, I put, um, to the love of my life, the father of my children, the man of my dreams, um, and my best friend, and co-laborer in Christ. And so he got me a Bible. Actually, I bought the Bible, but he grabbed it, grabbed his Bible, and copied it word for word, <laughs> except for making it to me. Same words that I used. And I remember somebody opening my Bible and going, oh, Pastor Brian wrote you the sweetest thing. Oh, oh. And it was like, how do you tell him? It's a fake. He copied. Because it's the Bible, and they're like so impressed. You're like, <laughs> it's beautiful, isn't it? Almost as if I wrote it to myself. But we place these expectations on others. We expect others to be intuitive. You know what? You're not only a mystery to your husband, you're a mystery to everybody else. You know, unless we're clear, nobody knows what we're thinking. But I love that Paul did not 
place expectations for those who hadn't come to his defense. He didn't resent anyone. He didn't say, well, you know. Somebody's talking back there. He didn't expect the guys behind the stage to be quiet. But Paul did not blame any of those who weren't at his defense. He didn't say, you know, you know, Trifomus was not at my defense, or Eubulus, or Linus. You know, they were in Rome. Why didn't they just come over and defend me? I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when all his disciples forsook him, but he already knew that would happen, even going so far as to warn Peter of Peter's own weaknesses, almost saying to Peter, Peter, your expectations for yourself are way too big. I don't have those expectations for you. I know how weak your flesh is. I know that you're going to fail, but I also know that you're going to come back. And when you come back, you're going to be able to give grace to your brethren, and you're going to be able to strengthen them in faith. So Paul has grace, and this grace is on display because he doesn't have those expectations on others, but only expects what God can do by his grace in others. Paul also mentions that he left Trophimus in Miletus um, 4.20 because he was sick. Again, Paul did not demand that Trophimus accompany him. You're not that sick? Just grab some Kleenex and come on. No, he left him. Though Trophimus had at least on two occasions delivered Paul's letters for him from prison, he didn't have that expectation for Trophimus at this point. It was better for Trophimus to stay in Miletus and get better. Paul prioritizes the Lord's presence, verse 17 of chapter 4. The absence of Paul's co-workers and associates gave the opportunity for the Lord to make his presence known. Paul felt the strength of the Lord, and the Lord worked powerfully through Paul to that, in that situation of being tried before Nero. The Lord's presence was more precious to Paul than the defense of men. That's a hard one, isn't it? To prioritize the Lord's presence above the commendation of people. Often we use people and popularity and whether people like us or not to feel good about ourselves. We almost exploit that. Paul didn't. Paul said, the Lord stood with me. The Lord was so good. I didn't need those others because the Lord was with me. He defended me. He spoke powerfully through me. He delivered me from the mouth of the lion. It was the Lord. I think of Daniel in Daniel chapter 6, when Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. I believe that's what Paul is referencing here. Daniel, remember, was on trumped-up charges, thrown into the lion's den. And Darius was so worried about Paul, he realized that he had been deceived into um, throwing Daniel into the lion's den. And so Darius doesn't sleep all night, and early in the morning he goes to the lion's den and he calls out, Daniel, was the God that you trust in able to deliver you from the mouth of the lion? And Daniel shouted back, oh, king, be comforted. Yes, the God that I serve Close the mouths of the lions. And that's what Paul experienced in that court. Just like Daniel was alone in the lion's den on trumped up charges, so Paul in the court of Nero on false charges felt the delivery of God closing the mouth of the lions. Paul prioritized the gospel, verse 17, even under duress, as the future of his life on earth and ministry was being jeopardized. 
and he was being deliberated over by the ungodly, vile and evil men. I mean, you can't have a worse court to be in. It's like being tried by Charles Manson. I mean, this is bad, bad stuff. But he said that the message was preached fully through him that the Gentiles might hear. Here's Paul's objective. You know, they might think they're putting them on trial. And others might look at it like, oh, these are ungodly men. This is so wrong. Paul sees it as an opportunity. I've got a chance to reach even more with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul believed in the power of the gospel. In Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to all who believe. Unlike Matthew 13, which we talked about last week, Paul threw the gospel seed out indiscriminately because you never know where the seed of the gospel will land, take root, and grow. So the message of the gospel is resonant with the power of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Paul knew, if I just proclaim the gospel, the gospel will do the rest Paul was more excited that the gospel was preached. And it's almost like he was coming back saying, I preached the gospel to the whole heathen assembly. And oh, by the way, yeah, God delivered me from the mouth of the lion. His priority was, I got to preach. Years ago, um, my friend Linda, she had this wild, wild little boy. He was... He was three or four, I can't remember, four years old, wild. I mean, just always doing the naughtiest things. His name was Brian. He was named after my husband, but we called him Baby Brian to distinguish him from Pastor Brian, Baby Brian, even till he was like, well, I think he's 30. We still call him Baby Brian. Like, are you talking about Baby Brian? I said, no, Baby Brian's 37. So anyway, Baby Brian. So... One day, baby Brian got in his dad's truck at four years old, and his sister was in it, and he turned to her and he said, put your seatbelt on. And he put it in gear, and it rolled down. They lived on a hill all the way into the street. Well, baby Brian got a spanking for that, and if you don't believe in it, then I'm not telling you their last names ever. And he's 37 years old. Anyway, he got in trouble for that, and was sent to his room, and And he said he was sorry. He said he was really, really sorry, and it was really bad. But at Sunday school, they asked if anyone had anything to share. And Brian stood up and looked to the left, then to the right, and said, I drove a truck. (laughs) I think that's what Paul did. I think he, he was like writing, I preached the gospel. I got to do it to the whole heathen court. I preached the gospel. Paul, at his own personal expense, could have had Titus and Crescents stay with him. It would have been in Paul's best interest to have Titus and Crescents stay with him. Like, no, stay with me. I don't want to be alone. These are godly men. Titus will next week, was sent to Crete. He was somebody that Paul could rely on. Um, And another time he had sent him to Corinth, he could rely on Titus to take charge of the situation and do everything that Paul asked him to do. So Titus would have been a strength to Paul. But instead, he sends Titus to Dalmatia because he knows those people need the strength of Titus and the godliness. And he sends Crescents to Galatia to help the fellowships there. I don't know if you realize that Galatia was an area, not just a little town. It was was an area. It's not in my notes, but I thought I'd throw that out to you. Um, He had Erastus stay in Corinth, no doubt because the church of Corinth needed Erastus. He sent Tychicus to Ephesus, 
perhaps to take the church so that Timothy could visit. The gospel going forward and the strength of these churches in the gospel was more important to Paul than his own comfort, even in death. Finally, Paul's hope because of the gospel is on full display in verse 18. In these final words, there is no appeal to pray for his life to be spared. One more story. This is my dad's favorite story. When I was a little girl, I was in church. We used to have to sit in church, like from three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There was no Sunday school on Sunday nights or on Thursday nights, Wednesday nights, no Sunday school, so you had to sit in church. And I guess I was getting a little rowdy. I was either four or five, and I just kept getting rowdier and rowdier. And I don't even know what I was doing, but I remember something along the lines of my mom whispering to me, you're gonna get a spanking, or that famous phrase, you're cruising for a bruising. And she kept whispering it. I was being warned by my brothers and sisters, and apparently I wouldn't stop. So the, my mom grabbed me, and she pulled me up and by the waist and started to carry me outside. My dad is in the middle of preaching, and I turned around, and I shouted really loudly, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me, all the way as my dad was carrying me, as my mom was carrying me out. And my dad said, oh my, I think we better pray for Cheryl right now. And I heard that I didn't get the spanking. Prayer works. But in these final verses, Paul didn't say, pray for me, you know, that I don't die or that I'm spared or that I'm delivered again. Rather, he spoke of his hope of being preserved by the Lord, that he might be in the presence and glory of the Lord forever and ever. And he says, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Imagine the threats of torture, the threats against his friends that came in those court proceedings. Nero was known for his violent nature. Imagine the threats that were against him. I'm doing a podcast today. After I finish, I'm going to be talking about Anne Askey, recording one. This woman was the only woman to be tortured on the rack in England. And then she was burned at the stake because she publicly proclaimed the gospel. Her accusation was that she was too enthusiastic about religion. And when she realized, when they realized that she wouldn't be stopped or deterred, even under torture, she refused to recant. They had to carry her by a chair to the Smithfield, where they tied her to the stake because all of her bones were out of joint. And many of her tendons had been torn. And yet, she never, ever denied the Lord. Not in the flames, not on the rack. I think we have this worry about denying the Lord. Do you ever worry, like, what if they took my kids? What if they did this? What if they did that? Lord, will I be faithful? Do you ever have those thoughts, or is it just me? Lord, will I be faithful? Will I be faithful? If, if we get persecution, will I be faithful? If I lived in the Ukraine and the communists came. Would I be faithful? Would I be faithful? Here's the good news. God is able to preserve you and your faith. I was just reading in 1 Corinthians that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will also give you a way of escape. God is in the business of preserving those that he has called 
and making sure we get it, get all the way to heaven blameless. In Luke chapter 22, verse 32, when Peter, you know, was saying to Jesus, I will never, never deny you. Jesus said, oh, yes, you will. And Satan has asked for you by name. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And you know what? His faith did not fail. Everything else failed, his resolve, his self-opinion, everything else failed, but not his faith. Why? Because God is able to keep you, to hold you, to preserve you. There's a story, and you probably all heard it, that Corey Tinboom told, and it was that she used to always wonder, if she would be strong enough to stand for Jesus if she was persecuted. She had this this fear, even as a child, will I be strong enough to stand for Jesus? And one day, she asked her dad, and her dad said to her, Corey, her father, she called him father, father, her father, but her father said to her, I heard her in person, she said father, Her father said to her, Corey, when do I give you the ticket for the train? Do I give it to you years in advance? Two years in advance? A week in advance? And she said, no, father, right before I get on the train. And he said, and that's when you'll get the grace that you need, is right before it happens. Whether it's dying grace or living grace, God gives you the grace right at the moment. And he has promised to get us to heaven, to preserve us. And Paul was sure that the Lord would deliver him and preserve him from every evil work to his kingdom. When we were in England in February, it was cold. It hovered in the 40s. Um, Every Once in a while, you could see a patch of snow. It was overcast and cloudy. However, everywhere you looked, wherever there was a vacant field or trees, you could see these beautiful crocus, purple crocus, and beautiful yellow and white daffodils on display. Everywhere you looked, all winter long, These flowers were buried and pushed down by frozen dirt. Yet think about these lilies and these crocus, that they continued to push their delicate stems and petals up against the cold, dark, dirty atmosphere until they burst through the seemingly impenetrable ground in a display of triumph, and they unfurled their deep purple and brilliant white and gleaming golden petals. Think about it. And like dancing, like, (laughs) no, I don't think so. And as we looked at these beautiful flowers, growing like weeds in neglected fields, beneath trees, and on roadsides, there was no way that by looking at these beautiful flowers, we could see any struggle that ever took place. Their petals were not wilted or damaged or crumpled or torn or stained or muddied, were they? You would never guess that they put up a war against the harsh elements and obstacles of winter. Victoriously and beautifully, they publicly announced the end of winter and the coming of spring, not with the army or wearing army fatigues, but with their delicate beauty. So it will be when we reach heaven, having pushed against the frozen death threats and hard obstacles of the winter of life, ever pushing higher and higher past the darkness, burial ground and filth of this life, we will emerge into the heavenly glory in unscathed beauty, and preserved by Jesus Christ, proclaiming forever the end of death and the coming glory forever of life 
When we're in heaven, death will lose its sting. It can't kill me again. I'm resurrected with Jesus Christ. This was Paul's testimony. This was Paul's legacy. You know, life is shorter and more vulnerable than we realize. I can't believe how I'm always running out of time. Therefore, we need to prioritize the eternal, and we need to trivialize the trivial. We need to invest and prioritize relationships, especially in the body of Christ. We need to invest and prioritize God's word, even when we think we've heard it all. We need to invest and prioritize grace and continue to grow and be strengthened in the grace of God. We need to prioritize the Lord's presence above the presence of people and put our expectation on the Lord's presence rather than on people. We need to prioritize the gospel knowing that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And if we will just speak it, it will fall on the soil. And we need to prioritize our eternal destiny, heaven. And I promise that if you invest in relationships, God's word, grace, presence, gospel, and the kingdom of heaven, that when you get there, you will have absolutely no regrets. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the legacies that you have given us. Lord, I I thank you for Miss Vilma. I thank you for her life. I thank you for her example for her kindness, for her love. Lord, we thank you for my dad and his example. We thank you for those who have gone before us and, Lord, fought the good fight and run the race and finished the course, held the faith, Lord. We thank you for these. And we pray that you would give us a legacy of glory. Lord, like Paul's, like Miss Velma, Lord, help us today to make those wise investments for tomorrow. In Jesus' name.